Okay, you guys seem on fire. You ready to hear the word of God this morning? Did you happen to know, though, that the shovel was a groundbreaking invention? (laughs) Sorry, that's the last one I had to get off my chest. I want to introduce to you today's speaker, someone I resented for a long time because he stole my daughter, Um, but he made up for it by producing the best grandson on the planet. Uh, So will you put your hands together, please, for Brendan Skinner. Good morning. Good morning. Why don't you turn to someone next to you and say, Happy Father's Day. I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. You've got to be seated. Thank you. You can be seated. I'm excited to be here. I'm honoured to be speaking on Father's Day. I've got a good word for you here this morning. Um, but before we get into that, before I tell you a bit about my family and... Uh, and pull out some things from which I just wanted to honour fathers and I thought that one of the good ways of doing that would be to hear from some children and so I've got a few people teed up Uh, perhaps we can get our first lot Barry and Susan and uh, Cody if you can come up on stage we're going to ask these guys just uh, they're going to give us an idea of where they kind of sit in their family and then also I'm going to ask them what's something that you're Father or father figure has, uh, what did I say? I was going to ask you, passed on to you. What's something that they've passed on to you? So, Cody, you, in your family, you got, it's a little bit complex. Yeah. Tell us about that. I've got, got a bit of a complex family. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, sort it out. Go that? Possibly. I'll go with my voice. I've got a bit of a complex family, and uh, I lived with my dad and mum. <laughs> I don't really remember them living together or being together, but I lived with them until I was about 12, and then I moved to live with my grandparents. So I've had two very different father figures in my life. The first one probably taught me in an unconventional way um, how I want to live my life, uh, probably by showing me not what to do, what not to do, um, but that's all right. That's a way of teaching. That's right. And then, um, yeah, Bill is in this house. I can't see him. It's a bit glary, but he's up the back. Uh, he's probably, the one thing that he's taught me how to do is probably work. Um, Adam and Eve were put in the garden to work before sin. And some people say, oh, working's from the devil. No, it's not. It's from God. <laughs> and he is a man that works. Um, he's amazing. He's been working for almost 50 years and he had a shoulder reconstruction a couple of years ago. And he said to me, oh, this is the most time I'm going to be taken off work in 50 years. And it was eight weeks. Um, wow. So... He has taught me how to work, um, and I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Bill. You can pass it on. Hopefully, Bill, one day you'll get to teach Cody how to rest in retirement. <laughs> Susan. I wouldn't bank on it. Um, my dad lives in – gosh, it is glary up here. Uh, my dad lives in New South Wales, and um, I have a great deal of respect for my dad. He taught me lots of stuff. You know, um, you know he had a sign on the fridge that said – the captain, the rules of the ship, rule number one, the captain's always right, and rule number two, if the captain's ever wrong, refer to rule number one. And he always lived by that, and I tried to do the same in my household. <laughs> um, he taught me that honesty was the most important thing in a relationship. Um, he taught me the values of trust and love and um, 
I think, you know, in a practical sense, I spent many, many days of my childhood standing next to my dad and passing screwdrivers and hammers and finding the right size screw. And, you know, um, now as a woman, I do so much home renovating, fixing things, the kit, something breaks, I can fix it. And I just have to think of now, what would dad do? If there was, if he didn't know how, he would figure it out. And he, sh he taught me that. And I, I really feel every time I am painting a wall, you know, would the dad be happy with that? So um, in a practical sense, he taught me lots of stuff on how to actually be practical. And, um, but he taught me about love. He's an amazing man. Awesome. Thank you, Susan. And I'm glad to hear that you don't just pass the screwdrivers to Bill now. That's great. <coughs> and so Barry, tell us about your family. Well, how this possible? Uh, well, my dad's actually here today, so um, I grew happy up Father's in a fairly, Day. Yeah, happy Father's Day. Um, I grew up in a fairly traditional family, so uh, it was pretty cool. I think besides a really strong worth ethic, I think one of the things that my dad, um, I definitely got from my dad was the uh, ability to improvise um, <laughs> and awesome. fix things and make things and, and all that sort of stuff. I can remember when I was a kid, um, he was always in the shed doing something, fixing something. I remember when I got a... Uh, a desire to have uh, birds because my grandfather was uh, used to breed birds and all that, and so I decided I wanted to have birds. And so my dad made a, uh, a bird aviary out of an old wardrobe. I remember remember him making that, and you know, had a little hatch around the side you can open up and all of that sort of stuff. But he always taught me that you could. Doesn't matter what you got around, you can always turn something into something you need, you know. So yeah, that's something that's been really useful awesome. in everything I've done. So yeah, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you an extra question. Yeah, okay. Because you're the one father that we've got speaking as well. Yeah. What What's something that you would like to have passed on, or like that you would like to pass on to your kids? I'll let you think about that whilst Ashley and Jordan come. They're going to share something as well. What would I like to pass? On? What would you like to pass on? Jeez. <laughs> well, I reckon that. That's I reckon a good answer. Did you hear that? He said, geez. Geez, yeah. Oops. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think the same sort of thing. I think just um, the resilience to be able to solve problems. So, you know, no matter what life throws at you, there is always something out there that can help you solve it, whether it's other people or other things in your life. So I think right. the idea to be able to solve problems, I think that is really important. Right. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I think often we want to help them with a solution, but, but to be able to teach them how to solve it for themselves is more powerful. Ash? Okay, can you repeat the questions just because I was in Kingston? Yes, <laughs> so, so just give us a picture of your family and okay. how you sit in that, and then what's one thing that has been passed on to you? Okay, so um, my family is probably uh, not quite traditional, but very typical <laughs> for a lot of people these days. Yeah. Um, so my biological dad left when I was almost 12 years old. Um, and a few years later, um, my mum married David. So I have two dads. <laughs> um, and I think, oh, look, my my memories of below 12 are quite fuzzy, as most of us can right. probably account for. Um, so really uh, having David in our family, um, we're just very tight-knit. Um, me, mum, David and Carmen and we would do lots of fun things as a family. So I think actually uh, it shows, you know, like 
dads can lead their families to do really fun things and to spend real quality time together. Awesome. So like David would be like, let's go in the car down to Victor and like very spontaneous, let's walk to Granite Island. Let's get in the car in our pyjamas to drive up to Mount Lofty to see if it snowed, awesome. which it never did. <laughs> but um, or, when or, it was really it cold, if he'd it get us out of bed to go in the car and go to Mount Lofty awesome. and be like, oh no, not again. Um, I feel, surely if it did if it did snow Mount Lofty, it will have melted by the time you got there. <laughs> Probably. Anyway. But we, he was convinced that we were going to catch it one day and it hasn't happened yet. But um, Don't stop believing, David. <laughs> Don't stop believing. <laughs> so I think just, uh, you know, having lots of fun. Like I, awesome. yeah, I didn't really know, um, not that my real biological dad never did anything fun, but just that we could do things together as a family and I think when that's valued by the dad because mums kind of naturally I think (laughs) want to do that and kind of as mum says you know want to gather her chickens together and cluck 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 let's have everyone in one place but I think it's so powerful when dad wants to do that too. Awesome thank you Ash let's thank Ash and Jordan. (laughs) Now Ash gets applause no one else did that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) High expectations now. And George, you're one of two sons? Yes, one of two sons with my dad here today as well. Yay, uh, winning. Didn't have to invite him though, so that's a bonus, right? Always good. And he's got a free coffee, presents done. <laughs> 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 kidding, Sorry. kidding, I actually already got him a present. He, fine, he also way. got socks at the door, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's like two presents. Yeah. You don't want to spoil your dad. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> And what's something that he's uh, passed on to you? Um, so, like, one thing is a great hairline, <laughs> uh, which I'm always grateful for. Um, the other thing is I feel like, like, you know, work ethic is such a thing that we often say, but to me, it's his, it's his longevity and his humility. So, the fact that he's got that work ethic and he does it, but he does it quietly. He doesn't... He's not like out the front saying, I've been working, like in like shouting the praises of all the work he's been doing. He just goes about quietly and does it. And, you know, he's been doing that for years and years and years and has a good balance of work and rest, which I'm trying to get there, but. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, why don't we thank all the people who've shared. Thank you, Jordan. (laughs) I thought fun to hear what people have been left with from their fathers or from their father figures, uh, because I think that we all leave something different and we all get something different. Um, <coughs> I know for me, I've, I've recently become a father. My son's now almost a year and a half old. Uh, it, is, are there any fathers in the house that can testify to the fact that when you have a kid... Oh, that's my son. Yeah, he t- <laughs> they, <coughs> they grow up so fast, don't they? They just really... Yeah, he's, he's hard work. He's hard work. Uh, no, uh, let's, uh, let's give the actual picture of my family. So this is my son in the middle. His name's James. Um, I think when you become a dad, it just totally changes everything about your life, doesn't it? Any dads can testify to that. It changes your mind, the way you think about things. It changes your body. You get a dad bod. I know the women complain about pregnancy and stuff, but the dad bod is real. And it, I think it changes your heart, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting, or if you've read the book. I watched that movie a few years ago, 
And I thought to myself, that has got to be one of the worst movies I've ever seen. That is just so boring and just uninteresting. And then Kissy got pregnant. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I should probably scrub up on this pregnancy topic. So I watched it again. And I was just, I was a mess for the whole movie. I was crying. This one guy, his wife's got a bit of a, like a risky pregnancy and labor. And I'm like, what if that's me, you know? And so it's totally changed my heart. I cry all the time in movies now. Before I was older, I'd cry. Now I'm just a big, big softy. So I'm enjoying being a dad. Uh, we're going to get James off the cigarettes pretty soon. So we're working on it. We're working on it. <coughs> but I wanted to talk to you this morning about uh, something that I can speak about because Obviously, being the father of a, a year and a half old, I can't really claim to be an expert on all things fatherhood. I mean, well, I could claim to be that, but you would all groan and say, well, you're not. I wanted to talk to you to, this morning about legacy <clears throat> because I think for fathers, this is uh, especially potent for us. What is it that we want to pass on to our children? But really, legacy is for all of us because we want to be able to leave a better world for future generations. And so whether you're a father or not this morning, this is something that we connect with, but especially for fathers. How can we live a life that outlives us and leave a legacy for future generations? Okay, so I was quizzing some people before this message about legacy and the word, so I just want to clear a couple of things up. Here's what legacy isn't. I'm not talking about a sorority future generation. If some people have seen what is that show? Pitch Perfect or other things where the legacy is like how you get into a sorority because your grandma was part of the sorority. I'm not suggesting that we should all go and make sure that our children can get into sororities in the United States. That would be outrageous. Um, but I also want to talk about legacy as something more than monetary inheritance. Because if we talk about legacy as something beyond just monetary inheritance, it can be a legacy of values, it can be an, a legacy of attitudes, it can be a legacy of beliefs. Notice that uh, Jordan made a joke about hairline genetics, but when people were asked, what is something that your father has passed on to you? They didn't say, oh, he gave me a watch, or he, uh, you know, he paid for my schooling. Um, it was... It was the example of the father that had been passed down to people. And so I'd like to talk about legacy as something more than monetary inheritance and something that can be passed on in, as, as an example. And I think that as soon as we start talking about legacy in that way, then we need to recognize that all of us leave a legacy, whether we intend to or not. And sometimes that legacy could be positive and sometimes it could be negative and sometimes it could be a Mixture of both. But I think if we ask ourselves the question, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? Then we can start to be intentional about that during our lifetime instead of just rolling the dice and seeing what you get at your funeral. Have you noticed that? At a funeral, people often talk about this is what this person meant to me. Well, I think it'd be pertinent to think about what would I want people to say? that I left them with before we get there and roll the dice. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to share a story about an old legacy in my family, and then we're going to look at a legacy in a family in the Old Testament, 
We're going to track it forward to the New Testament, see what Jesus has to contribute to it. And then we're going to wrap, it, wrap the whole thing up with how to leave a legacy. Does that sound good? Is anybody actually here this morning? Who's sleeping? Who's got someone next to them sleeping? Give them a nudge. Why don't you turn to the person next to you, help me preach and say, I want to find out how I can leave a legacy. <coughs> okay, cool. So some of you lied, but that's fine. I mean, lying in church isn't good, but you did what you were told, so I appreciate it. You know, in my family, before, when I was a, when I was a baby, so it's before I can remember, uh, my mother and father were looking to buy a house. They were renting at the time. Uh, I'm told it was a miserable existence in that house, which was dark and gloomy. And so they were looking to buy a house. And uh, they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we, they had three young children. My dad was uh, an engineer running his own business. And so they, they had a gap between what they had and what they were able to, uh, what they needed to afford. And so they had some... Australian family members who had received some inheritance and they were sitting on a whole bunch of money uh, and so they went to them and asked for some help and those family members said, uh, no, we're not going to help you, you can just go it alone and, uh, and that was very difficult for my parents to be rejected in that way. Basically, the other people were like, I'm going to splash the cash and go and live for myself until death do us part, or whatever. And they wanted to do their own thing, so that was fine. And then my parents went to my mother's parents in Germany. Uh, so they're my Oma and my Opa. And they, they expressed their need. And my Oma and Opa lived in a little forest. A little forest? <laughs> Just a little tent? Or something. No, they did a little... Uh, village, and the reason I said forest is because the name of the village is called Forst in German. So, getting my words muddled. So they lived in a little village. My opa was a police officer, and my uh, my oma was a seamstress. And they didn't have a lot of money either. They certainly weren't sitting on a big pile of inheritance. But they felt for my parents, and they wanted to help. And so they, the 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 story goes that they passed the hat around the village and collected money from everywhere that they could get it, so that they could help my parents to buy a house. It wasn't a gift, it was a loan. And uh, they, they really stretched themselves to lend this money to my parents. And over many, many years, my parents were paying off that loan as well as the mortgage that they had from the bank. And I was aware of this growing up. I knew that my parents owed my grandparents money. It was never a sore point. Uh, until one day when I... My parents told us that there was some money remaining on the debt and my Oma and Opa had said to my parents, you've paid enough, we want to wipe the debt clean, we want to wipe the slate clean. And what we want you to do is the gift that we have given to you, instead of paying it back to us, we want you to be able to use that to pay forward to future generations so that you can help them in their time of greatest need. And so the moral of the story was always the same. And the, mo the, the story was told to us as children often throughout my childhood. And it came to be that when Kirsty and I were newly married, uh, we'd been renting for a little while, we'd started talking about buying our own house, 
and my parents came up with a plan. They asked for us to come and move into the granny flat out the back of their house, but it wasn't ready for that, and so they put a whole bunch of money together at considerable expense to renovate that granny flat so that we could move in there whilst we save for a house and live rent-free. And of course, we said yes. Awesome. Thank you, mum and dad. And uh, of course, at that time, the story of Oma and Opa passing the hat around the village comes back up. And they say, you've got to remember, that we don't want you to try and pay this back to us. We want you to be able to help James and your other children and other people when the time comes and when they're in their hour of greatest need. And so what stood out to me in, in that whole story is that there's a lot of money involved in purchasing real estate. But really, it's not about the real estate or the money at all. That's not what has the most impact. The thing that has the most impact is the sacrifice that my Oma and Opa made, the sacrifice that my parents made, and the values that they were passing on to us. And the fact that they didn't want us to pay them back, they wanted us to be able to pay it forward to those who need it most. <coughs> and so I think there's legacy in that. There's a legacy of generosity. There's a legacy of my Oma and Opa doing some outrageous generosity, which instills value in future generations. And what, what I'd like to note is that I think the most powerful thing in the whole thing is the story. It's the story that carries the legacy. It's the retelling of the story that carries the legacy, and it's the retelling of the story that passes on those values to the children. Because you could do those things, never contextualize it, never mention it again, and the legacy would die. Am I right? In telling the story and framing the story in a, in a moral way, we are sharing values. And so I want to ask you this morning, what stories are you writing in your life right now? What stories are you writing in your life at the moment right now? What stories are you writing in your kids' lives? <coughs> I think it would be worth taking some time to reflect over the next week on what kind of stories am I making? Am I, am I writing a story that can be told and passed on? And I think the other thing to note about stories is we ought to be very careful about the stories that we tell our children because they can have great power and they can also have uh, do damage. When we tell kids, like Ashley said, you can't really remember before you're 12, right? Can anyone remember like vividly everything that happened before they were 12? Not really, right? I've, <laughs> I've often like talked to my brothers about things that we all did as kids and then they'll turn to me and say, you weren't there for that. And I realize that my memory is not a memory of the event. It's a memory of the story which has been told by my brothers and then myself over many years. And so I think that when we tell our kids stories like, this is what you were like as a kid. You used to always do this. 
or you used to always be like that. There's great power and also great danger in those stories because it's the stories that will be remembered and, and they're, they're possibly just shaping our kids' minds about how they see themselves and how they see the world. Okay, has anyone had fun this morning? I'm having fun. That's one of us. Thank you. So I got a story, speaking of stories, from the Old Testament, uh, and it stands out to me as a story of legacy and family, and it's a story of King David. And does anybody like Game of Thrones? Embarrassed to say in church because of all the sex and killing. If you like Game of Thrones, you need to go and read 1 and 2 Samuel and the whole book of 1 and 2 Kings because I am convinced that at any point the author of Game of Thrones or the screenwriters, if they ever ran out of plot devices, they would just flick through the Bible and pull something out. This thing is like a plot summary of Game of Thrones. (coughs) And so we are introduced to David not as a king, but as a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of all the sons, amen to all the youngest in the house, but he's neglected and a prophet comes to anoint the new king. God has told the prophet, the old king is no good anymore. We need a new king. Not me, it's him. It's all right, that man right there. (laughs) Jokes, jokes. You can't hear. Um, so the, the, the Lord help me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word. Okay. So the, old, the prophet has come to anoint the new king. And he's told, he's told the prophet, the old king, I've, I've departed from him. We need a new king. And so he's told him it's going to be one of the sons of this man, Jesse. So Jesse brings out all his sons. The prophet comes to the first one. He says, he's handsome. Surely it's him. God says, it's not him. I don't think the way that you think. And then looks at the second one. He's handsome. Surely it's him. It's not him. I don't know why Samuel was so obsessed with the handsomeness, but he keeps going down the the line of all the sons until God says, he's not here. Where is he? He said, well, we do have one other son, but he's out tending the sheep. It's probably not him. He's the youngest. He says, we'll bring him here. He brings him here. He says, David was very handsome, and he is the one that God anoints as the new king. So <coughs> the point is that David is introduced as very humble. He's a humble man from humble beginnings, and God brings uh, his anointing to David, and he exalts uh, David by his hand. And so then what does David do? He's anointed as king. Maybe you've felt like God's calling you to something very spectacular. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, what do I do now? What does David do? He's humble. And so he goes back to tend the sheep. He's just been anointed as king and he goes back to tend the sheep until God pulls him out and starts to bring him into the king's house as a musician and then later as a soldier. 
And there's this long conflict between the existing incumbent king and the new king that is to be. So King Saul and King David. And Saul is jealous when David kills Goliath. Saul starts burning with jealousy and wants to kill David. David has to go on the run into the wilderness to escape from King Saul. And all the while, David remains humble and submitted to the king. He's not trying to overthrow the king. In fact, he has opportunities where he gets the chance to kill the king and take the king's ship, if you like, for himself. And instead, he cuts the corner of Saul's robe off so that he can show that he had the opportunity to, but refuses to kill him. <coughs> so David's position in this story is this. I will trust God. If God's will is for me to be the king of Israel, then I'll wait for him to bring that to pass in his time. He's not trying to take it for himself. David does not call for a leadership spill. There's some leaders in the running. He refuses to call the leadership spill. He waits for God's timing. Until Saul, the old king, is overcome by enemies, he falls on his sword and David is crowned king. Under the reign of King David, the kingdom gets united like never before and they experience great blessing and success. And it's during that time of blessing and success with King David on the throne that God makes him a promise. He makes him a promise that from David's royal line will come a future king who will build God's temple here on earth and establish an eternal kingdom. See, David's saying to God, God, we've got this, all these cities now. We've got a good capital. We're all together. Let me build you a house. Let me build you a temple. And God says, no, thank you. I'm going to build you a house. And it's in that house that he promises him that through his real line, his legacy will be one of an eternal kingdom that's established. And that's when everything starts to go wrong. <coughs> David sees a beautiful woman. He's a handsome man. He's seen a beautiful woman who is already married. She's bathing on the rooftop at Bathsheba. Some of you will know the story. And he asks to have her for himself. She falls pregnant. He tries to cover the whole thing up. He can't. And so he has her husband assassinated on the front lines of battle and so that he can take Bathsheba for his own wife. Oh, how the mighty have fallen is the words that David pens when Saul dies. And yet here is a man who's risen to kingship from humble beginnings and is tempted in a way where he then also falls. But the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him and David is horrified by what he's done and he repents. That's the turning point. And yet God leaves him with the consequences of his sin and his family and his kingdom all start to fall apart. David by this stage is a father of many sons. Amnon, his first son, is heir to the throne and Amnon sexually abuses his half-sister Tamar. David doesn't contain the situation. Absalom, his third son, second in line to the throne, second son died at a young age. Absalom is furious with Amnon, his older brother. And so he takes matters into his own hands and he has Amnon assassinated. 
Now Absalom is first in line to the throne and David's humility is clearly not passed on to the children because Absalom starts plotting behind the scene and leads a rebellion against his father David. He literally stands at the gates of the kingdom of Jerusalem, waits for important people to come in and says, are you being heard? If you're not being heard, it's because King David is on the throne. If I was on the throne, then your, your matters, your needs would be heard. What is he doing? He's gathering political support. It's as if he's going through the corridors of Canberra and gathering support, and then he does call a leadership spill. And he leads people against a rebellion. And once again, David has to go into hiding in the wilderness, but this time he's not an innocent man. And he hides in the wilderness until David's military commander has Absalom killed. And so now you've got a man, David, who made a mistake, was a good king, and he has a whole bunch of sons. And... uh, a bunch of them have been assassinated and by, by one another, remember. It's not like, oh, I lost, I've lost my arms, in, I've lost my sons in battle. It's like they are warring with each other. So this family is in real turmoil. And when David is old, his next son, Adonijah, starts accruing chariots and an entourage he thinks he's the heir apparent, he makes a shot at the throne as well. 1 Kings 1 verse 5 to 6, it says, About that time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggath, began boasting, I will make myself king. And so he provided himself with chariots and charioteers, recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time. Turn to the person next to say, never disciplined him. Even by asking, why are you doing that? And so in his old age, in David's old age, Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan convinced David to crown his son Solomon. They figure Solomon is the best bet that we've got and we promised the throne to him some time ago. They, they, they crowned Solomon. <coughs> and we're wondering... Where is this great king who used to sit on the throne? When is this great king going to do some great fathering? Because it hasn't been going so well so far. And on his deathbed, we see a glimmer of hope. Because David brings Solomon in and he says, Solomon, I want you to remain faithful to the Lord. I want you to keep his commandments. This is important. And so he's, it looks like he's going to pass down a positive legacy. And then the next phrase he says, and also to make sure that your throne is safe. These are all the political assassinations that you need to make. I mean, it's not, it's not good, right? It's not good. Here's what strikes me about the story of King David. Here's what I think is important for us to recognize. You can, well, first of all, leadership spills are not a modern phenomenon. They've been happening for thousands of years. So anyone who tells you that, oh, this, this whole thing's crazy modern, it isn't. But secondly, it's, you can be the greatest king that the nation has ever seen. 
If you fail as a father, the whole thing can come crumbling down. And what do I mean by that? Because some of us aren't fathers. Some of us don't necessarily have that exact role. What I mean is you can build something great, but unless you can pass it on, it'll crumble to the ground. When you read on through the book of Kings, the history of Israel's kingdom, David is not the first in a long line of ever improving kings. He is the beginning of the end. Generation after generation slowly tear the kingdom apart, spiral it downwards into destruction until the nation is taken over by their enemies and people are dragged into exile. So they went from slavery in Egypt to wilderness into the promised land and then they're taken out and they're put back into slavery. My question to you is, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Some people hope that their name will be remembered so that somehow that they can live on. But I think that, that when we think about legacy, we shouldn't be thinking about us and our name. We should be thinking about what is it that we can pass on to help others. When we look at the New Testament, the promise comes true that David was promised that there will be a Messiah from his royal line. And that person is Jesus. Jesus was a promised king from the line of David. Let's compare these two kings for a moment. Jesus had a lot to say. And yet he didn't write a book so that his words would be eternal. Jesus was preoccupied with bringing God's presence to earth. And yet he didn't build a temple like David planned and Solomon did. Instead, he tore the curtains of the temple and he prophesied that the, the destruction of the temple in the near future. Jesus uh, was given, if you remember at his birth, a whole lot of gold, frankincense and myrrh when he was born. And yet when he died, there's no record of the great wealth that he'd accumulated through investment, which he put into a trust fund for his family and caused them to disperse it at their will if they did according to what he wanted them to do. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do to leave a legacy? He, he invested himself into 12 men, 12 disciples. He poured himself into other people. And what was the outcome of Jesus' legacy? Well, it wasn't like King David where everything spiraled downhill. By imparting himself into a small group of, of people, young people, it grew. Those disciples imparted what they had received into others. John 14 says, I tell you the truth, anyone who, this is Jesus talking, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with my Father. So Jesus was expecting not that slowly people would get worse and worse, but yet his disciples would do even greater works than he did. And so Jesus leaves the greatest legacy. He started arguably the biggest movement of people that history has ever seen. There's about 2 billion Christians on the planet today. And he did that by investing in a handful of people. So when we're talking about your legacy, if you want to have one, if you want to leave one, I don't think it's not, your legacy is not in wealth. Your legacy is not in real estate. It's not in business. It's not in inventing something. Your legacy is in people. It's in the investment into other 
people around you. I think that's encouraging to us as fathers because we can invest into our children. But not just as fathers, I think all of us as believers have the opportunity to invest ourselves into those around us so we can raise them up. So I'm going to wrap this thing up with three ideas of how to leave a legacy. The first is deal with your demons. Because your bad, your bad habits, your attitudes, your beliefs, they can wreck a family and bring any good legacy down, just like King David's did. And they're too easily passed on to others. And so we have to first deal with our own demons if we have any hope of planting good seeds in other people. The second thing is submit yourself to God. Submit every area of your life to God. How can you show others what is good unless you first acknowledge the one who is good, the God who is good? If you allow God to fill and flow through every area of your life, then you'll be an example of goodness to your children and to others. Otherwise, you're just sharing your opinion. And the third thing is to invest in people. Jesus tells this weird story to his disciples about a, a dodgy manager who uses his boss's money to make friends. And it seems to me that the moral of the story is uh, that we should use our worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. And what is it that makes me think that? Because at the end of the parable in Luke 16 verse 9, Jesus says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they'll welcome you to, a t to an eternal home. Would you stand with me? I would love to pray for some people, some fathers in the house. Some of you maybe aren't fathers, but you, you want to be able to leave a legacy. Would you just close your eyes with me as we spend a moment here in the presence of God? I would love for you to consider what kind of a legacy that you would like to leave. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of those around you, that they can take what you've given them and run with it. And who are those people in your life? Who are your 12 disciples? Who are the people that you will invest yourself into, that you will make outrageous, generous acts, that you'll write new stories in their life? Maybe you have some demons that you need to deal with. Maybe there's areas of your life that you need to submit to God. Wherever you're at, would you just lift your hands to heaven here this morning?
And we'll ask God to come, for His presence to come, for His presence to bring fresh encouragement to your spirit as we look to the future and to those around us. And we ask Him, what and who can we impart? Let's pray. Father, I just thank You that Your Holy Spirit is the most encouraging, most powerful thing that we can impart. Lord, I thank You that as You're moving amongst us, as we submit ourselves to You, that You wash away our our darkness, that You wash away the things that can leave negative influences. Father, I thank You that You are bringing to the forefront that which You've put into us, the good things that You've put into us. Father, I pray that You would bring to our minds this morning and over the coming week people in our lives who we can invest in. I pray, Father, that You would give us new ideas about how we might invest in others. And I thank You, Father, that as we make those investments, as we begin to tell new stories, as we act in a way that creates a new story, Father, that those things would amplify and multiply. And every good thing, that You would be on it, Father. That You would be on it and You would be growing it in the lives of others. We thank You, Father, for every person here, whether they're young or old, that each of us has influence, that each of us can help others walk a good path into the future. We pray Your Holy Spirit, bless that. Be with us as we do that. In Jesus' name. I just want to keep your eyes closed. I want to ask you a question. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with the Father God. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart. Or maybe you've done that in the past, but you've walked away. I feel like Father's Day is the perfect opportunity to acknowledge our Father in Heaven who loves us, who knew you even before you were born, who loved you before you were born. He is calling us into relationship with Him. And so if that's you here this morning, if you don't have a relationship with God, I would love to pray a prayer with you to just ask Jesus into your heart. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so there is a relationship with God Almighty that you can have by asking Jesus into your heart. I would love to pray that prayer with you if that's you here this morning. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand and as a whole church, we'll pray this prayer together. So if you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus into your heart or you've done that before, but you want to come back this morning, Would you just lift your hand up for me high so I can see? I would love to pray that prayer with you and ask Him into your heart. I'm just going to wait five more seconds. If there's someone, would you lift your hand for me so I can see? Fantastic. All right, let's close in prayer. I think it would be awesome if you just let me pray this over you.
our Father in heaven. May your name be lifted up. May your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Fantastic. Awesome. Give Brendan a hand. A great legacy in that message alone that we can take home. Um, it's interesting. I've been a father a lot longer than Brendan, but I've only been a grandfather the same amount of time that he's been a father. And uh, I think what he what he says about being a father applies double to being grandparents. That not only have you already laid the foundations for a legacy. But you have the ability, you have the opportunity to actually keep doing that and to actually fine tune it. You, I mean, there's a, there's a saying that says, you know, grandchildren and grandparents get on so well because they have a common enemy, um, which <laughs> I don't actually believe it's true. But grandparents and grandchildren can actually form a great bond if the grandparents are actually helping build a legacy with the parents of their grandchildren. So I think that there's a there's a huge opportunity for teamwork, just like Jesus. You know, he poured his uh, his life into twelve disciples, not so they could go and do things separately, so they could act as a team. And so I think there's a great message in that this morning.